So, um, welcome again in Jesus' name. I could have entitled this sermon, kind of like previously, The Confusion Continues Again, dot, dot, dot. Um, But uh, I've decided to go for a different title anyway. Um, I'm thinking right now that this is likely to be my last sermon in the little series on dinner party dialogues. Uh, God willing, next week I'll remember the Protestant Reformation. It's Reformation Sunday, October 31st. And then I want to preach some sermons on and about uh, the Lord's Supper, the ultimate dinner party that foreshadows the final eternal dinner party. Uh, today I want to look at Mark 14. I want to read 14, 1 to 11. I'll look particularly at verses 3 through 9 but would point out for you that you've got a kind of a sandwich here uh, of treachery um, in the first two verses and in the last uh, uh, two verses. Uh, treachery by the uh, chief priests and the scribes in the first two and treachery by uh, Judas Iscariot in the last two and kind of uh, in between, kind of the goody and the Oreo, so to speak, uh, is this wonderful faithfulness uh, of this unnamed uh, lady here in uh, Mark chapter 14. So let's pray and then we will read. Father, with a word, you created the universe. And then you sent the word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, to redeem the universe. And the scriptures tell us that out of the mouth of the Messiah, when he returns at the end of the book of Revelation, there will be a a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. The word will again come in power. We pray that this word, your word, your inscripturated word, will be power in our midst today transformative in our midst today, comforting in our midst today, challenging in our midst today. And that you would use a wretchedly sinful, crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. In Jesus we pray in your name. Amen. John, I mean Mark 14 at verse 1, I remind you we believe the Bible is the word of God written the only infallible rule of faith and practice. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. 
For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers will fall off, but not the word. It will abide forever and forever. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that I struggle with this passage quite a bit. It's deceptively simple. In verse 3, we have uh, the woman's compassion. She poured this flask of ointment or perfume over his head that cost, we find in other parallel passages, uh, it cost a year's wages for a laborer. She is not deterred by the cost. She is not inhibited by the fact that she is being watched. Her action is very unique in its thoughtfulness. It is marvelous in its timeliness, in its humbling, in its costliness. After her compassion, the people condemn her in verses 4 and 5. Outwardly, excuse me, inwardly, they are indignant. It says, they said to themselves indignantly in verse 4, and then outwardly they're scolding her in verse 5. The word for scold means to criticize harshly or to snort with anger. So there's the woman's compassion, the people's condemnation, and then Jesus defends her and commends her. But question really remain. Who was Simon the leper? We don't really know. We know where Bethany was. Bethany was about two miles east of Jerusalem. It's where he was staying during the feast. Who was this woman? Where did she get the perfume? Did she she work at Jill's of Jericho or Judy's of Jerusalem at the Clinique counter? We really don't know. Where did she get it? What was she thinking when she did this? Was she thinking he's going to die? I need to anoint him for burial? I doubt that. But we don't know what she was thinking. How do we apply this to ourselves? What does it mean? Jesus is not physically here, right? We can't wash his feet or anoint his head. It seems extraordinarily unique, doesn't it? So I want to share with you why I struggle with it and then give you some things that I think we can learn in a more positive way, okay? Three reasons why I struggle personally with this passage uh, is because I think... I would have been one of the people running the numbers and indignantly scolding this woman for what she did. At least I think I would have been thinking that. I don't know if I would have been saying that. But I think I would have been running those numbers because I'm a kind of a guy that runs numbers. I just, you know, it's one of the curses of being wired like I'm wired, right? Um, In verse 4, some are running the numbers and conclude that this is a waste. It's a waste, right? It just evaporates. It just goes away. It's so expensive. They think it's unwise or irrational at least. Maybe they think it's sinful. I don't really know. 
Because the poor slighted and neglected because of this, they could have argued on the grounds their reasoning that it was sinful. I'm not sure I would have been thinking about the poor at all. These people are better than I in that regard. Perhaps they're thinking about the, the tradition of the, of the Jews that at the time of uh, the uh, Passover, they would give gifts to the poor. And maybe the gifts to the poor on their mind, and, and they're thinking that this could have been a great gift to the poor. I mean, a, a year's wages, right? But I think I would have been bothered by this lavishness. Have you ever heard of somebody building a church building and doing something that you thought was really lavish and unnecessary? I remember the first time I heard about somebody building a, a church building and they were going to put, I don't know, $500,000 organ in it. And I thought, a $500,000 organ? Think what you could do with that. Well, they would have said, I think, well, we can worship God with it. Well, yeah, but... And I'm not trying to justify organs. I'm just saying we've, I think, all had thoughts like this. How would you have reacted to this? You know, you go there, it took a year's wages. I don't know how much that is and in our day and age. It's a lot of money. And she just puts it on his head and it evaporates. Hmm. Secondly, I struggle with this passage because I really don't think I love Jesus enough to do what she did. The native language of love is lavishness, right? She was lavish in her love. Am I lavish in my love for Jesus? Are we lavish in our love for Jesus? Would we have done this? If you, if you back up in the book of Mark just a little bit into chapter 12, at the very end of chapter 12 of Mark, there's this story of, the, of Jesus watching people putting their offerings into the into the place where they collected offerings, a box, you know, probably a metal box, and clank, clank, clank. They put their money in there, and this widow comes and puts two small copper coins in there. And Jesus said she put in more than all of them because she put in everything she had to live on. Maybe this lady emptied her bank account to anoint Jesus with perfume. I don't really know. But I struggle with this passage because I fear I don't love Jesus as much, even when I know of his life and death and resurrection for me, that he did that as my substitute, that he took my punishment for my sins. Even now, I know he's resurrected and ascended, and I know he's praying for me at the right hand of the majesty on high. I tend to think of my possessions as my possessions not things that are held in stewardship, not things that I will leave behind. I was so impressed. There was this lady in the church in Alabama whose grandmother died, and they read her will. I wasn't there when they read the will, but this lady, she's one of the elders' wives, and she told me this story. She said the will, when it got to the part in her will, it said this person gets this and that person gets that. It began and said this, hold these things with your hand, not your heart. And I thought, Wow. She must have been the real deal, right? Hold these things with your hand, not with your heart. I too much hold things with my heart, and so I'm impressed by what this lady did, and I, I struggle because I don't think I love Jesus that much. Thirdly, I struggle with this passage because it's very difficult to apply. 
Does it justify every extravagant expenditure in Jesus' name for church buildings and church organs and you fill in the blank? Well, I think probably not. Does it tell us not to be concerned for the poor? I've heard people use this verse, you know. Well, you're going to always have the poor with you, so you can't really do anything about alleviating poverty, and so don't worry about it. Don't try, right? I've heard that. Have you heard that? Maybe you have. I'm pretty sure that's false with a capital F, false. I mean, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, when you give to the needy, do it this way. He assumed they would be doing that. And then in Matthew 25, he gives uh, that, uh, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was naked and you, uh, and you, and, and you did not clothe me. And, and, and he says, look, in as much as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. So I think it's pretty clear that it doesn't tell us that we have no or to have no concern for the poor. So what does it teach us? I have those struggles personally with the passage. What does it teach us? Well, I want to give you quickly six things. Okay, here's the first one. We should love Jesus deeply and lavishly and be willing to make any sacrifice for him personally. You see, Christianity is not primarily about projects, right? It's not primarily about projects. It's not primarily about programs. Because projects and programs can distract us from Jesus. Now, I'm not anti-project and program. But they can be pursued in such a way that they distract us from the feet of Jesus Christ. Christianity is much more about personal relationship and personal contact with Jesus. Doctrine and programs and projects are all important. Indeed, I would argue necessary. And Jesus is more important than the poor. And they are very important to God. So there's a great danger in being excessively calculating and being too goal-oriented and being too pragmatic. In verse 4, in the old American Standard Version... It says that, um, get my, to what purpose has this waste of the ointment been made? That's the old ASV translation. To what purpose has this waste of the ointment been made? And the answer to that is to demonstrate love to Jesus. That's the purpose. That's the purpose. And it may be costly to demonstrate love to Jesus, but if we love him deeply and lavishly, We'll be willing to make those sacrifices. Secondly, we should be careful and cautious about censuring others for the way they express lavish love to Jesus. And yet, they should be careful too. Uh, Some of us, by nature, are auditors. And we audit too much and we censure too quickly. Uh, There was a man, ooh, first year I got to Alabama, 1986, and he would come to the Bible study that I was leading and he would... uh, He would sit and he wouldn't say much until he thought I made a mistake. And he said, did you mean this or this? And I never could figure the guy out. And then I realized he was an internal auditor at a big company in in Birmingham. And that was his role in the kingdom. He was going to audit. He was going to audit me. He was going to audit the elders. He was going to audit the other people in the church. 
I wasn't sad when he left the church, I'll be honest with you. I really wasn't. We need to be very careful and cautious about censuring others for the way they express lavish love to Jesus. And yet, we need to be careful about how we express our lavish love to Jesus. The Westminster Confession, I think, rightly says, good works are only such as God has appointed in His Word. Um, we must be guided by His Word, not our Word, uh, His Scripture, not our traditions. I, I get that. I agree with that. But this is a really unique situation because the physical body of Jesus is in the presence of this woman. Thirdly, I think this passage teaches us, as you look at verse 8, we must do what we can for Jesus. Verse 8, she has done what she could. She has done what she could. Because of what Jesus has done for her, she has done what she could. Because Jesus has done for us in the gospel, taking away our sins as far as the east is from the west, because of his sinless life and substitutionary death and victorious resurrection, because he sent the Holy Spirit, because he's praying for us at the Father's right hand, we need to do what we can for Jesus. Because God delights to remember and reward the faithfulness of those who love and honor him. Now, this is contextual. And what I mean by contextual, it depends on this. So, you know, if you said to me, well, what does it mean for me... She did what she could for Jesus. Right. Who are you? What are your gifts and abilities? What are your resources? What's the situation in which God has placed you? Um, I had Mary read that passage in 2 Corinthians 8 where it says, If the readiness to give is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So if there's a really wealthy person around, they write a $100,000 check to the church, and you make $20,000 a year, you're not supposed to feel guilty or bad. As a matter of fact, according to the widow's two copper coins, you might well give more than the person who gave 100000 But I'll preach that text another time. It'll be contextual, but do what she did what she could. And I don't know all of you well enough to know what you can do and what you can't do. But my hunch is she erred on the side of lavishness, right? I think so. So each of us, I think, should ask, what am I doing for Jesus? Fourthly, we need to remember and report about those who have made extraordinary acts of personal devotion and emulate them. We need to remember and report about those who have made extraordinary acts of personal devotion and emulate them. Um, Jesus says in verse 9, I Truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now, that doesn't mean that she ought to be motivated by the thought that, hey, people be remember me and report. Um, personally, I don't like it in churches when pe people differ on this, but personally, I don't like it when people in churches, when they say, if you'll give this much money, we'll put a plaque on the pew that says you gave it. I don't like that, okay? That, that's not to be, uh, and, and I, maybe that's because my heart's too sinful and I couldn't stand that very well. I don't know. But um, this is reported. And other lavish doings for Jesus are reported. Uh, this woman is reported. The widow with the two coins is reported. We need to remember and report about those who have made extraordinary acts of personal devotion and emulate them. 
I mean, the martyrs. We're told in Hebrews 13, verse 3, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. We need to remember those people. So people remember people that were martyrs for the faith. People remember and think about missionaries that are captured in Haiti. Uh, The Voice of the Martyrs sponsors every year the first Sunday in November, the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, to remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And we need to remember and report those who have made extraordinary acts of personal devotion and emulate them. Whether it's giving money or giving their life as a martyr, we need to remember and report and make heroes of them. And by the way, let me point out, uh, both the widow in chapter 12 and the lady here in chapter 14 are not professional Christians. As far as we can tell, they were very ordinary people. Fifthly, we need to remember Jesus who made the greatest act of personal devotion that has ever been made when he willingly and voluntarily offered up himself up for us as a sacrifice for sinners. It says, she, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. We need to remember Jesus. That's what we do in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We remember Jesus. And the extraordinary and lavish love that he demonstrated for his people When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sixthly, lastly, we need to see that opportunities to minister to and for Jesus tend to come and go. In this incident, it's two days before the Passover... And there at Bethany, that's where Jesus would go at night during the Passover, her, the window she has to do this is very small. If she refrains, she'll miss the opportunity. And yet she didn't. She took advantage of that. Many opportunities we had are limited in duration. Um, Sally was um, in uh, Safeway to get a flu shot the other day. And uh, she got a call uh, from her sister, or text, I can't remember which, I wasn't there, uh, that her sister probably has ovarian cancer. And uh, that hit Sally pretty hard, as you can imagine, and she's teary-eyed in the store. And she's got to wait 15 minutes or so to get the shot. She's walking around in the store, and she runs into a neighbor that we have every reason to think doesn't know Jesus. And she runs into the neighbor and says, Oh, Sally, how are you? And Sally says, Well, right now I'm not very well, and told her why. And this lady said, Oh, yeah, I, I lost my mother at 59. And Sally said, Well, I lost mine at 57. And this lady said she was angry at God for a while, and then she said there wasn't any God. You know how these things go, and, or something like that. I may have this a little wrong. Um, And they talked like that for a while. And then this lady said to Sally, I just don't know why we're here. 
I just don't know what's going on. And Sally said, well, I can tell you. <laughs> I can tell you. And it, where's, the, where's the window for that comment? It's about five seconds, right? It's about five seconds. You either take the opportunity or you choke, right? That's the similar situation here. This lady either takes the opportunity or she chokes. And she won't have the opportunity again because Jesus will be dead. If she's going to uh, anoint his head beforehand for, for burying. Now, the others went to try to anoint him after he died, yes. But this lady, these opportunities come and go. And if you've choked in the past as I have, just look for other opportunities. Pray for other opportunities. Ask for wisdom. What should I say? How should I say it? Rejoice that God has given you another opportunity and take advantage of them. Indeed, what opportunities will God give us this week to minister to Him and for Him? And will we take them? Will we take them? Remember, please, that even a cup of cold water given in Jesus' name is given unto Him. That's what Matthew 25 tells us. As, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. She did it unto Jesus. And we have the privilege of, in a very, very similar manner, not physically, not present with Him, not a year's worth of uh, salary and, and some perfume, but we can touch those that Jesus says is like touching me. That's a great opportunity. Let's pray. Lord our God, um, thank you for this faithful lady that no doubt we will meet in glory. She will have a seat far nearer the throne as far as we can tell than any of us. Thank you for her great faithfulness. Thank you for her lavish love and devotion. Father, I pray that you would stir us because of the gospel to know a strong and sound basis for lavish love. Indeed, there's not a one of us who know Christ that should not be lavish in our love for him. Forgive us that we have troubled lavish people. Forgive us that we have run the numbers when we shouldn't have. Forgive us that we've perhaps even scolded some of them. Forgive us for that. And help us, as it says in this passage, to do what we can. And we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.